0: Hello, and welcome to Pod Emperor of Dune. I'm Elaine, a longtime sci fi fantasy fan, reading Frank Herbert's classic science fiction Dune Saga for the very first time. I'm joined by my co host Alex, who is tackling his first reread. Join our chapter by chapter deep dive into the series. As I make wildly incorrect predictions, Alex tries not to give anything away, and together we learn to walk without rhythm.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Pod Emperor of Dune. I'm Alex, here as always with Elaine. Hey, guys. Today we're diving into chapters 56 through 59 of Children of Dune. We're going to catch up with Gurney after his escape from Jakarutu. Then we'll shift gears and catch up with Aaliyah. Then we sync up with Ghanima and the Fremen who have fled from Tabor. And then we get back to Gurney as he has an interesting interaction with Paul and Leto. All right, so you want to get started with the first epigraph today?
0: Sure. So this is from the Arakine Catastrophe after Hark Alada. After the Fremen, all planetologists see life as expressions of energy and look for the overriding relationships. In small pieces, bits and parcels which grow into general understanding, the Fremen racial wisdom is translated into a new certainty. The thing Fremen have as a people any people can have. They need but develop a sense for energy relationships. They need but observe that energy soaks up the patterns of things and builds with those patterns. So I guess just a bit of scholarship about how scientists and planetologists in particular have learned from the experience with the Fremen.
1: Yeah. What they've learned I couldn't exactly explain to you <laughs> even after reading the epigraphic. Energy times.
0: relationships, obviously, <laughs> didn't you read it? <laughs> yeah, I don't care that much about this. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> we have just gotten increasingly lackadaisical about the whole epigraph thing as time has gone on but I just care so little about so many of them
1: well we'll have to have a debate in our final episode as to whether we think these epigraphs are worse than the ones in Dune Messiah
0: Uh, I don't think they're that different at least this one there's this like mystery of the Harkalada thing that's like mildly intriguing but Mm -hmm. also still hasn't been answered so no revelations there yet
1: do you have any theories on that
0: I mean, I think I've talked about it before. It seems like to me that it's a title that someone assumes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Clearly things are written by Harkalada, because the epigraphs say, like, by Harkalada. So I think that it's a title or something like that that someone has taken on, and that's what the before Harkalada or after Harkalada designations indicates like before or after that title was taken mm-hmm. at least it's the best guess that I have to unify those two meanings or uses of harkalata in the epigraphs could be wrong but okay. that's the best way I have to like figure out how it seems to be both an event and a person
1: mm-hmm. do you think it could also just be like after their death
0: maybe but it just seems like then you would just say after the death of but
1: mm. fair enough
0: I don't know that's also possible Don't know, but we still don't know who they are or why they're important. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I would guess that it's something to do with Leto, but hard to say. Mm -hmm. Perhaps Harkalada is the sand trout incarnation of Leto.
1: (laughs) All right, well, we will not get an answer to this today.
0: No, we will not. Even as we do begin to see Leto make his transformation into a god figure. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so let's dive into our first chapter, which is relatively short. We pick back up with Gurney Halleck, who has made his way out of the desert proper and stands outside of a smuggler enclave named Tuek Siech for the late Esmar Tuek, whom we knew so briefly in the original novel, Dune. Mm-hmm. I really thought he was going to be such a bigger character than he was. He was introduced <laughs> as this badass, then is just immediately murdered. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> one of the first surprises, and I think one of my early failed predictions, probably. Anyway, Gurney has petitioned the smugglers in this siege for sanctuary, and he's currently waiting for them to deliberate and decide whether or not to shelter him. He had apparently ridden a worm here, which is how he managed to survive the desert crossing, and by the description, it seems like it was for the first time, something that had shocked the smugglers given that Gurney is an off-worlder. But he seems quite nonchalant about it, thinking that it was easy for a reasonably fit person who has seen the process done many times before, which I think is giving a little... Too much credit to the average person, and maybe selling himself a little bit short.
1: Yeah, on the other hand, describing him as a fit person versus describing him as, like, a lump. Like, which one is it?
0: I mean, he's a master, like, fighter, right? So he's mm-hmm. clearly in good shape. I think the lump is more in reference to his facial features, which is <laughs> unkind.
1: <laughs> Fair enough.
0: I don't think we're ever supposed to get the impression that Gertie is, like, out of shape.
1: Mm-hmm. Although I do believe in this chapter there wasn't a single reference to any lumpiness.
0: Yeah, I don't think there was any focus on Gurney's physical appearance, which was mm-hmm. a, nice, a nice change.
1: Yeah, it was nice for change.
0: <laughs> so Gurney stares out at the desert and thinks about all of the changes that the magics of water have brought about, and how fragile all of this newfound change is. He's particularly aware of this fragility due to the damage to the cannot below. Which has released a great flow of water and attracted thousands of sand trout. Gurney wonders what could have caused so much damage, as in some places the holes in the rock walls are 20 meters across. Obviously, we know the answer to this, but at the time Gurney has no idea. Below, people work to either repair the damage or painstakingly carry water from within the siege to feed the most vulnerable of the plants. Gurney is struck by a particularly fragile willow tree at the edge of the planting zone near the desert in an apparent fit of optimism by the garden planners that they could sustain its life long term. (laughs) He feels an odd kinship with the probably doomed tree, as they are both alien to the planet. The smugglers in the siege are taking an awfully long time to make a decision, although Gurney doesn't seem very worried because he knows that they must need good fighting men like himself, so it would be in their benefit to shelter him in exchange for some services. However, he doesn't seem super keen on this particular batch of smugglers, who aren't anything like the men he once knew when he took shelter from the Harkonnen purge of Arrakis all those years ago. He views them as a new class of less honorable men, more concerned with profit than anything else, perhaps forming less of a community with values than the men Gurney used to know. Although, to be perfectly honest, smugglers being overly concerned with profit does not seem like a super surprising trait to be found in smugglers, so I don't know why Gurney (laughs) is that surprised about this.
1: It seems like a standard smuggler trait. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, here's Gurdy like romanticizing the old smugglers from the good old days. <laughs> and I'm like Alright. I mean, honor among thieves, I guess, could have been found in the old group but not the new group, but I don't know. I don't really know what you would have expected. It seems like the people Gurney used to know are probably more of an outlier among the smuggler class. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> anyway, Gurney thinks about how the way things are going might destroy everything here, from these smugglers to Stilgar and his neutrality—obviously Gurney has outdated information (laughs) here—to the Fremen loyal to Aaliyah. He thinks that all of these groups will become colonial people, with the attitudes of a subject population rather than that of free men and women, resenting the authorities over them. I have to say I'm not entirely sure why Gurney thinks that this isn't already an accurate reflection of reality. When have the people of this universe not been subject peoples? Even before the jihad and the imposition of Paul's new religion on the galaxy, they were, by definition, all subjects of imperial rule. They were basically all colonies anyway. So I don't really know why this would be a shift.
1: Well, it seemed like the emperor before, at least, was a little bit more, I don't want to say stagnant, but was not as oppressive as Paul was, right?
0: He was definitely more hands-off, but I think that varied greatly depending on which of the great houses you fell under the rule of, because you could get lucky and end up on an Atreides planet where you were relatively free, but you're still a subject population. You're still subject to the authority of the Atreides or whatever great house rules your planet, so... They've never really been free. They've never lived in a democracy where they had any choice about their leadership. They're born on a planet and have to abide by the whims of whoever rules it, which is this hereditary monarchy system.
1: Yeah, well, the, and that empire was standing for at least, well, for about 10,000 years, right? A little over 10,000 years, so... Mm-hmm.
0: And they had this, like, strict feudal class system the mm-hmm. filed or whatever. So, like, I just don't think that these people have ever really been free men and women. They just perhaps pre-jihad were not as oppressed Mm -hmm. depending on what planet they lived on perhaps
1: yeah that's a fair point
0: but uh, yeah I I just feel like Gertie is again romanticizing the past (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) perhaps
1: well I mean what else does he have to compare it to that he's experienced in his lifetime right it's just been Carino rule and then everything that's happened under the Atreides rule
0: Yeah, but he thinks that, like, the way things are headed now is going to make them more colonial and, like, act like subject populations who resent authority. But I I feel like there definitely were factions that resented authority before. I mean, even the Great Houses resented the authority of the Emperor and were always scheming. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm certain that there was resentment against the imposition of the Jihad. So I just, I don't really see why the future would be different and make people more resentful of authority or colonial as gurney describes them Mm -hmm. at any rate these thoughts make gurney think that he can't trust these smugglers but he must simply use them for what he can and make use of their distrust for others he thinks that they have lost the give and take of free men in part it seems this has occurred due to Aaliyah's continued and maybe even exacerbated oppression of the galaxy as she harshly punishes those who oppose her and rewards those who support her while moving her forces around in such a way that nobody could muster opposition to her troops and her enemies are kept off balance. Gurney seems impressed by the spy network he is certain she must make use of. He thinks that she'll win unless the Fremen rise up against her. I do wonder if this... Because there have been several references to Aaliyah, like moving her troops around and haphazardly and like people can't predict what she's doing... And I have wondered whether this is due to her actually being, like, a great strategist or simply because she's got the Baron shouting in her head and she just makes, like, weird decisions that people are interpreting as her trying to throw them off guard or if they're actually just kind of without their decisions.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair point.
0: Partially because the Baron is just, like, in her head giving her weird and possibly bad advice.
1: Frying her brain, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely possible. I hadn't thought of that myself.
0: Because it's never, we never get a perspective from Aaliyah thinking like, oh, I'm going to do this to throw my enemies off balance. It's all just other people referencing it. So it was just kind of an interesting thought that I had of like, hmm, I wonder if she's actually doing that on purpose (laughs) or if people are just ascribing this motive to her because that's the only thing that would make sense. But yeah, so Gurney doesn't really think that her enemies have much of a chance unless there's a successful Fremen Rebellion. Right. So, finally, the siege opens and a man named Melides emerges. Gurney is really critical of the guy, thinking quite harshly of his appearance and also of his character. So that was actually a bit of a funny twist in which Gurney is just like, oh, this guy (laughs)
1: looks
0: like a potato on legs or something. (laughs) Like, there's like a very clear description of how skinny his legs are and how weird it makes him look or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, can't get through a Gurney chapter without being critical of someone's appearance it was just that gurney this time escaped at any rate gurney thinks critically of both his appearance and his character and thinks he just seems kind of shady melide mm-hmm. says that they will shelter gurney but gurney hears something in his voice that warns him that this will be a very temporary sanctuary so whether that means that the smugglers are going to like take him in but then betray him if they get enough money from Aaliyah or somebody or whatnot It's not specified, but Gurney's clearly suspicious. But he thinks that he only needs their shelter long enough to steal a thopter, and darkly thinks that the old Esmartuek would have slit this man's throat on sight. (laughs) Apparently he just looks shady enough to warrant a throat slitting. (laughs) So, there we end the chapter, but we will, have no fear, check back in with Gurney before the end of the episode.
1: I think Esmartuek just wouldn't respect people who skip legs day. As much as this guy has. (laughs) That's what it is.
0: I feel like, I don't understand how you can have, like, real skinny legs living in the desert. Walking on sand is hard. <laughs> it is so much harder than walking on anything else.
1: Well, I think the implication is probably that this guy is probably, like, one of the lazier administrative ones who doesn't really do much of that, and in the past they probably the were all like... part of, like, you know, doing all the hard work, right?
0: Potentially, yeah.
1: So, it's sort of like a cultural shift in the, um, the structure of the smugglers and how they operate.
0: Makes sense. All right, shall we move on to our next chapter and see what is up to? Sure. Spoiler, having a breakdown. All right, so the epigraph for this chapter is from the Spacing Guild Handbook. Any path which narrows future possibilities may become a lethal trap. Humans are not threading their way through a maze. They scan a vast horizon filled with unique opportunities. The narrowing viewpoint of the maze should appeal only to creatures with their noses buried in sand sexually produced uniqueness and differences are the life protection of the species. So I guess the Spacing Guild is probably the only group that would have cause to in any way write about prescience in an even like oblique sort of way, Mm -hmm. since nobody else really used it, but... And this isn't even really specific to prescience, although I think it kind of, because it talks about future possibilities, is related to that, Um, but basically the takeaway is leave options open. And also, the last sentence seems to be a bit of an admonishment against, like, inbreeding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gotta make sure we have genetic diversity to protect the uh, future of the species. (laughs) Right. I mean, I actually think, given how distributed humanity is, it would be very difficult to wipe out the species. For all that Leto goes on about how, like, humanity will die if he doesn't go through with his plan... I find it very difficult to understand how that could possibly happen when humanity is scattered across, like, thousands of planets, and, or at least hundreds of planets, and there's, like, enough people that killing 65 billion of them was not, like, everybody. Right. (laughs) Like, all the suns would have to go dark.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that.
0: Yeah. Anyway, let's get into the chapter itself. Okay, so Aaliyah has, apparently, heard what has happened at Tabor with the news brought to her by the same Boer Agarves whom the Baron had tried convincing Aaliyah to bring to bed in an earlier chapter. This is reflected in a particularly uncomfortable description of him as excitingly vulnerable to the point of being sensuous, which <laughs> I hated.
1: Yeah, there are some interesting descriptions of this character. Obviously, this was all done to sort of show you how much, like, the Baron... Aaliyah has become, or how intertwined with him she's become, because this is like the classic stuff that the Baron would think about in some of those really creepy chapters he had in the first book.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's specifically the person that he had wanted her to seduce previously, so yeah, Yeah, definitely didn't like that, because this is in her perspective and not the Baron's voice specifically, so it's really showing the infiltration of, of him and his personality into hers. Right. We learn that this uh, Buer Agarves had been a member of Sietz Taber, but now serves as an aide to Alia's favorite guard, Zia. Many hangers-on have gathered in the doorways and outside of this small audience chamber, already having heard the bad news about the deaths of Javid and Duncan. Alia has an oddly mournful thought, perhaps some vestige of her former self shining through, that Duncan should have died at sunset. However, she thinks of him as Idaho rather than in any fond term, so who knows. <laughs> What a weird thing to do, to just, like, think about your husband-slash-lover by their last name.
1: Yeah, that is a bit odd.
0: Strange. But again, could reflect the baron's infiltration into her mind. At any rate, she questions why Buer is the one bringing her this news. Apparently, he had been sent to Sietch-Tabur with Javid, and has been sent back here by Stilgar to carry the former Naib's final obedience which is a direct quote from Stilgar, although neither Aliyah nor Boer know exactly what that means. She demands that he again explain to her what he saw. Basically, Stilgar had summoned him with no warning of what the purpose was, and he had arrived to see the holy consort Duncan dead in the central passage, with Javid dead nearby in a side passage. Both bodies were already being prepared for water harvest at the time. Stilgar told Boyer that Duncan had killed Javid, and then admitted that he himself had killed Duncan after being provoked to rage. When Aaliyah presses for details, Boyer says that he has none, as nobody would elaborate on exactly what had happened, and then Stilgar had sent him away to carry the message to Aaliyah. Aaliyah asks whether he couldn't have done anything else, but he says that in Taver he had no choice but to obey Stilgar. Until now, because he has been freed from this bond by Stilgar, and now serves only Aaliyah. When she asks, he confirms proudly that he would kill Stilgar if she asked him to. She capitalizes and immediately does so. <laughs> Although at this point, Boer knows only that Stilgar has fled into the desert with about half of the fighting men of the Siege, along with Ganema and Irulan. Those who remained were freed of their bonds of loyalty to Stilgar and will have to select a new naib. Aliyah counters that she will choose their new naib for them. It will be Boer himself, but not until he returns with Stilgar's head. Buer seems fine with this plan, since taking leadership through combat is hardly outside of fremen tradition. So, not much uh, sympathy left for his former leader.
1: No, not at all.
0: Although, to be fair, if Buer is anything of a true believer, and Stilgar murdered his, like, goddess's husband, you can definitely see why he wouldn't have much sympathy. Yeah. So, Buer asks what support he can have on the murder Stilgar mission, and Elia admits that she can't give him many thopters because they're needed for other things, presumably defense, but he will have sufficient fighting men for his needs, which Zia will supply. He turns to leave to get started, but she tells him to wait, thinking about whom she will set to watch over him until he proves himself, before deciding to ask Zia for a recommendation. She further tells him that he is not dismissed, as she must consult him privately and at length about his plans to take down Stilgar and she sends him away with an attendant to show him to her quarters. Because this is quite obviously just a ruse to get him in bed, she signals to one of her attendants to ensure he is bathed beforehand because he smells like the worm he probably rode in on. She feigns grief and flees to her quarters. So, yeah, Aaliyah becoming more and more like the Baron, and he's finally getting his wish.
1: Yeah. and guess clearly what's happening here.
0: I mean, it could also, from Aaliyah's perspective be a manipulation technique, like, ensuring his loyalty to her.
1: I don't know. It just, it She's seems got so baron
0: Oh, it, I mean, it definitely is, but I think it might be accomplishing more than one thing. Yeah. It satisfies the Baron's desires, but also, you know, presumably part of the reason, besides her own desires, slash the Baron's desires, part of the reason that she was betting Javid for all this time was to, like, ensure his loyalty to her. Mm-hmm. So... He's gone, she's got room for a new lieutenant, so yep, she can kind of kill two birds with one stone there. Right. So once Ali is in her quarters, she angrily stomps her foot in a fit of rage, clearly seeing that Duncan had done what he did, in part to provoke her. It made it clear that he had known about Javid and was sending her a final message, and now she has lost Stilgar, Irulan, and Ganima in one fell swoop. She curses them all, before stamping her foot again, this time painfully onto a metal object. Looking closer, she finds that it is a metal buckle that had once belonged to Duncan, left here before she had tried to have him killed and route to Tobber. It's described as a buckle given to him, like, for service to the Atreides, so I think it's maybe meant as a symbol of his abandoning of her service. Mm-hmm. Like, fuck the Atreides and all they stand for. I know what you are and I'm leaving. Because she sees it very much as, like, a symbol that, like, Duncan had left to here on purpose. So that was my best read of what that meant. Unexpectedly, tears fill her eyes, despite the Fremen taboo and her, you know, recent plans to have him killed herself. <laughs> <laughs> this seems to trigger a sort of psychological battle in her head, and she feels as if she's become two people. One is dispassionate, looking at these wild emotions with surprise and a lack of understanding. The other wants to succumb to the pain and grief raging through her. The second one wins out, and she throws herself on her bed, sobbing and feeling the physical pain of her grief in her chest, all while the other persona just doesn't understand and demands to know who is crying. It kind of seems to me just like building all the psychological walls her whole life against the other memories, then having them broken down and slowly being possessed by the Baron of all people, has just completely destroyed her existing psyche So the genuine emotion that she feels thinking of her former love and the fact that he's dead just kind of breaks her inside.
1: Yeah. Poor Leah. She's been through some shit.
0: Yeah. Like, she's obviously done some awful stuff, but largely while she's been possessed, like, I don't think we have Mm -hmm. any indication that she was doing anything particularly bad before the possession started. And a large part of the reason for the possession is that she was, like, a 16-year-old girl who... I mean, I know she had other memories, but she didn't use them as much, and she actively tried to, like, push them back. So she didn't really have the full benefit of the maturity from all of those other memories to the same degree that the twins do. And her brother just, like, abandoned her with his two newborn kids, who were orphans now, and was like, good luck running the government. (laughs) Peace. And she was already, like, struggling before that point, so yeah she's definitely like a kind of tragic character i think much more so than paul because i think paul brought a lot of his shit on himself and i don't think that that's true of alia i mean she definitely brought it on herself in accepting the baron's help but i think she just reached such a psychological break point and she thought she could control him and failed at that like she didn't enter into this pact with him being like yes let's do evil stuff Well, that's the last we'll see of Leah for this chapter, at least, although she's mentioned a couple times in the next chapter. So let's move on to that. So this is from The Holy Metamorphosis by Hark Alada. By these acts, Leto II removed himself from the evolutionary succession. He did it with a deliberate cutting action, saying, to be independent is to be removed. Both twins saw beyond the needs of memory as a measuring process, that is, a way of determining their distance from their human origins but it was left to Leto II to do the audacious thing, recognizing that a real creation is independent of its creator. He refused to reenact the evolutionary sequence, saying, that too takes me farther and farther from humanity. He saw the implications in this, that there can be no truly closed systems in life. So I think my read on this is that Leto never has children. He deliberately makes a choice not to, have children and continue his own evolutionary line and that despite this he still was invested in the future of humanity despite not having like his own personal genetic lineage to oversee the success of Mm -hmm. and that perhaps this was important to him being able to accomplish his goals Uh, I think also just want to clarify obviously because of the way this is all described in like the third person in reference to Leto, and like the twins, obviously Harkalada can't refer to Leto himself, mm-hmm. because this Harkalata is writing books about Leto and Ganema. Right. So further mystery,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> still not resolved. Okay, so we pick up with Ganema mostly for this chapter, pretty much the whole chapter actually, although we'll check in with Stilgar and Hara as well. So several months have now passed since the deaths of Javid and Duncan, and we check in with Ganema on the run with Stilgar, Hara, and half of the old siege topper. Although, probably less than half now because they've jettisoned some of the younger, older, and weaker members. Mm-hmm. They are in one of the new towns that had been built in the expansion into the desert, which has since been abandoned because Leto destroyed its Kanat at some point. It lies within the Tanzeroft, and the harsh winds of the area have already started to degrade it. But the wind trap still works well enough to make the sand near the Kanat damp, so it provides passable shelter for the fugitives. This is only the latest in a long line of shelters that they have used, all abandoned due to the work of an alleged desert demon, which, of course, Ganima doesn't believe in, but something has definitely been going around fucking up the Kanats, Just probably not an actual demon.
1: (laughs) As a San Tariq would contend, though.
0: (sighs) Yeah. the cast out real big on demons. The fugitive Fremen receive word from the northern settlements when they run into rebel spice hunters, from whom they learn that only a few Thopters are still combing the vast desert for Stilgar. The group led by Buer Agarbase to kill Stilgar is often busy with other things and frequently gives up the search to return to Arakeen. Not much fighting has been going on between the rebels and Aaliyah's troops because her first concern has become guarding against the attacks by this desert demon. The smugglers also have this problem, but they are still out looking for Stilgar because they want to collect the bounty on him. Which apparently rises with every passing day.
1: Yeah, I think there's a passing comment somewhere that you could buy a planet yeah. <laughs> with the price that's on it. It just head. keeps going up. Yeah.
0: Silgar had apparently led them to this abandoned town via the smell of water, promising that they will soon go south, but not committing to a specific timeline. He seems happier and freer in this new life on the run than Geneva can recall seeing him, or really anyone, before. So he's really thriving kind of having to go back to his desert survival roots. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Only about 60 of the original group of fugitives remains, as they have offloaded the older, the sick, and the very young to their trusted allies in the southern sieges. Or palmeries, I think they say. Those that remain with the group are the toughest. Ganema wonders why Stilgar won't discuss what she can see happening to Arrakis, wondering if he doesn't see it as well. As the Canats are destroyed and people can no longer live in the desert lands that were expanded into under Paul and Aaliyah's reigns, the Fremen are retreating to their old territories, lining the desert to the north and the south, and Ganema thinks that something similar must be happening on the imperial side. Like Stilgar, Ganema feels freer here than she had before, although in her case this seems at least partially due to her relative freedom from the other memories, where they sometimes show up in her thoughts but aren't suffocating or threatening to overwhelm her. She's able to use them to remember what the desert used to be like before the days of the ecological transformation, when the air was drier. The wind trap in this town wouldn't have functioned back then because there wouldn't even have been enough moisture in the air to trap. There's also more wildlife now that would have thrived back then. Kniema considers this abandoned town, which was repaired four times after attacks by the desert demon before giving up after the fifth because they didn't have enough surplus water to risk losing even more. It was much the same at many of the other new settlements, many of which have just been given up at this point, with the Fremen crowding into the old sieges and reverting more and more back to their old ways, including superstitious stuff like seeing omens and everything, which really annoys Ghanima. For example, they consider the scarcity of worms to be found in the Tanzaroth to be the judgment of Shai-Halud, and become terrified when encountering the corpse of a dead worm in the desert, with even Stilgar's group requiring four days to recover after encountering one. I think we can probably assume that these observations about the worms are the work of Leto. I don't know why else there would suddenly be a bunch of dead worms in the desert.
1: Yeah, I think that's reasonable to assume.
0: Is he just like picking them off? (laughs) I mean, there is some implication in the next chapter that he's trying to like limit spice production, I think. So maybe killing off some worms is part of that
1: makes spice a little bit more scarce.
0: Yeah. I didn't really put that together until just now because I didn't really think about it but that might be why that's happening. But yeah I'm just I'm just assuming that Leia was responsible
1: mm-hmm. in
0: some way. For all her new freedom Kanema seems a little bit lost in her new circumstances. She feels safe with Stilgar although she does think he's a little paranoid and she seems to generally approve of the way that he has led them through the desert in the old Fremen way which is being lost by the newer breed of Fremen who have grown up in this new world. She trusts his fear of Aaliyah, which Irulan has reinforced with Benny Gesserit arguments. However, she still plots revenge against Farad'n whenever she gets the opportunity to enact it. But she doesn't know who else to turn to for help outside of this small group. As Jessica is still on Seleuze's Secundus, Aaliyah is possessed, Gurney's M.I.A., and the Preacher is nowhere to be found. There's only Stilgar, currently working on repairing the town's cistern, happy despite the ever-growing price on his head. Gineva ponders the mysterious desert demon— capable of destroying Kanaat so easily. One theory is a rogue worm, although few people really think this, since water would just kill a worm, so why would it be trying to bust open water reservoirs?
1: Seems (laughs) anti-productive.
0: Yeah. Many others think it's a band of rogue rebel Fremen working to overthrow the Atreides, Madinate, and bring Arrakis back to its past. Many of the people who think this are in favor of such a plot, wishing to get rid of the religious bureaucracy that has taken over and return to the simpler roots of the religion of Madib. Ganema wistfully thinks that she is glad that her brother has not lived to see this time, and that she wishes she could join him in death. But first she must avenge him through Farad'n, and also deal with Aaliyah's possession by the Baron, which can't be allowed to stand. So, a bit dark. Mm-hmm. She's just like, I'd rather be dead, but I have shit to do first. <laughs> At this point, Hara approaches, asking Ganema why she's alone out here. Ganema tells Hara that this is a strange place and that they should leave but Hara informs her that Stilgar is meeting someone here so they can't leave. At least not yet. Ganema is surprised, not having known about this, but Hara scoffs that Stilgar would tell a child everything, and makes some kind of joke about Ganema looking pregnant because of the water pouch in the front of her robes, although she's obviously far too young. Incensed, Ganema tells Hara that she has experienced pregnancy more times than she can count through her memories and not to play games with her. Hara steps back physically at how furious Ganema's voice is. And angered Ghanima continues, saying that Stilgar's group are all idiots and that she should never have come with them. Harrod points out that Ghanima would be dead now if she hadn't, and Ghanima says maybe, but that they aren't seeing what's right in front of them, demanding to know who Stilgar is meeting. It turns out to be Boer Agarves himself, who is being brought blindfolded and in secret by allies from another siege. Ghanima is initially nonplussed by this revelation, since she knows that the guy is, as she puts it, Aaliyah's plaything. Allegedly, Boer asks for parley, and Stilgar is granting it, with Boer having agreed to all of Stilgar's terms. Ganema wasn't informed previously, because Stilgar knew she would argue against this plan. This is certainly true, as in a gas, Ganema says that the plan is madness. Hara tells her to cool her jets, since Boer is a relative, apparently the grandson of Stilgar's cousin, so I guess they don't think that he would outright betray them or something but Genema points out that Farad'n is also her own distant relative, and that will hardly prevent her from exacting her revenge against him. Hara tries to convince her that things will be fine, as a distrans message has let them know that nobody is following Boyer's group here. Ganema is unconvinced, urgently urging Hara that they should leave this place. Hara asks if Ganema has seen an omen, wondering if she means the dead worms that they had encountered in the desert, to which Ganema quite amusingly tells her to "'Stuff that into your womb and give birth to it elsewhere.'"
1: This is such a great insult.
0: It's an incredible way to tell someone to stop being stupid and fuck off. <laughs> like, I almost laughed out loud reading that. And I also just love that this is coming out of the mouth of this, like, physically, like, nine-year-old child. Mm-hmm. It's great. Hara promises to pass Ganima's thoughts on to Silgar. but Ganima storms off to tell him herself. As she passes, Hara makes a sign to ward against evil at her back, which is kind of funny. Like, this fucking child. (laughs) Silver is completely unconvinced by Ganema's concerns and even laughs at her, ordering her to look for Sand like she was one of the normal Fremen children. She instead runs away into an abandoned house and hides there to deal with her rage, which subsides relatively quickly. However, she has an intriguing thought from somewhere in her inner lives, remembering someone saying, if we can immobilize them, things will go as we plan. The odd thing is that she can't remember who had said those words, which kind of implies that it's a conversation that she had had with Leto breaking through her compulsion to forget. Mm I don't know why else she wouldn't be able to remember who said it. So interesting that it seems like there's maybe some cracks in that mental wall already beginning to form before she's being released formally from the compulsion. So yeah, definitely interesting. Not sure how this meeting with where Agarves is going to go, because I can't exactly imagine that Leo would, under any circumstances, agree to any kind of deal that lets Stilgar live. So I don't know what they're negotiating for. I mean, maybe she would agree to let Stilgar live if they handed over Ganema. Because she, she needs Ganema for the whole intrigue with Faradin and she probably still wants to force-feed Ganema spice and make her, like, prophesize for her. Mm-hmm. Maybe she would consider that valuable enough to let Stilgar go,
1: but I don't think Stilgar
0: would agree to that.
1: No, definitely wouldn't.
0: So yeah, definitely interested to see how that pans out, especially because after this last chapter we're about to talk about, there's only five more left.
1: Mm -hmm. We are
0: really closing in on the end. All right, so this epigraph is from The Modinate, an analysis by Harkalada, our good friend. (laughs) Wadi was disinherited and he spoke for the disinherited of all time he cried out against that profound injustice which alienates the individual from that which he was taught to believe, from that which seemed to come to him as a right. So, just some more historical writings, this time focused on Paul rather than Leto.
1: Yep. Don't really have anything to add.
0: Yeah, I don't know how much speaking out for the disinherited Paul is doing, but...
1: (laughs) Yeah, it didn't seem to be much. Unless you're talking about himself.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Clearly a, uh... ...sympathetic history, I guess.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so in the main chapter, we check back in with Gurney, who is no longer with the sketchy smugglers, but instead in Shulok, which has been taken over by Leto. We learn that Leto estimates that spice production will soon fall to a stable point of one-tenth the peak production during the Harkonnen days. I'm a little confused about whether it was already declining due to Aaliyah's aggressive ecological transformation timeline messing with the desert and Leto's destructive actions stopping the transformation are what is stabilizing it, or whether his destruction is currently causing it to fall due to lost productivity, but he's almost done with the destruction, so it's going to stabilize soon. Mm -hmm. So I was a little bit unclear about that, but at any rate, he thinks that its falling will hit about one-tenth of peak and then stabilize. I would think that it was already declining, but there is this side note about how as the spice production continues to fall, it keeps doubling in value and that you can buy crazy amounts of things like planets with the money. Mm-hmm. So as Gurney watches, the people of Shulak diligently labor on spice production under the orders of Leto, whom they literally consider to be a god figure now, a sort of avatar of their desert god Shai Hulud. Which, to be fair, Leto has basically managed to turn himself into an almost mythological creature, and the Fremen are superstitious to begin with, so this is not super surprising. And these Fremen are extra superstitious.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Gurney can see a future in which the whole universe views Leto this way, and he isn't quite sure that he likes that future. He recalls how Leto had first brought Shulak under his sway, arriving in a thopter the Gurney had stolen, with the preacher and Gurney in tow. He had ripped open Shulak's canat with his bare hands, casually tossing rocks 50 meters across the desert, and decapitating the first man who tried to stop him with nothing more than a chop of his sand strengthened hand. Nice. He had laughed at their pathetic attempts to stop him with their weapons, roaring out that he wore the skin of shai Halud and neither fire nor weapon could harm him. Yeah, definitely getting some actually kind of Daenerys Targaryen vibes there. <laughs> 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 but uh, definitely positioning himself as this figure of worship. Mm-hmm. The cast out of Shulak pieced together that he was their escapee who had leaped into the desert and they fall on their knees before him in worship. He orders them to guard and honor the preacher in Gurney, as well as rebuild the Canat and start to plant an oasis garden, which will one day form a part of the home that Leto plans to build in this place. So, it seems that Shulak is to be his base of operations. He also orders them to store all the spice that they are collecting, rather than selling it. Everything that he says, the cast out listen to in fear and awe, seeing him as Shai Halud come to life. Gurney hadn't actually realized what had happened to Leto when they were first reunited in the small rebel seats that Gurney had escaped to with his stolen thopter, where Leto had first brought the preacher after their encounter in the desert, traveling by worm. Gurney had not recognized the preacher as Paul at first, seeing some resemblance to the old duke, but one that could be explained by chance, as this man physically appears older than Gurney himself. Gurney asked Leto if he knows that people believe the man to be Paul returned, which Leto confirms without saying much else. Gurney notices the odd still suit that Leto is wearing, but doesn't know what it is, because it's an absurd thing to try to predict. Like, you're not going to look at someone wearing this, like, weird material and be like, ah, they must have coated themselves in sand trout. <laughs> he wants to know exactly how Leto had managed to escape not just from Jakarutu, but also from Shulok, and how he's ended up here at all. Gurney asks Leto why he brought the Preacher here, since the people of Jakarutu had claimed that the Preacher was working for them. Leto clarifies that the Preacher doesn't do so anymore, and that the Preacher must be protected, as Aaliyah wants him dead. Specifically, Gurney is to be his protector. Leto tells Gurney that the Preacher has served him well, and the Atreides' way is to support those who serve them. Which is, like, a weird way to put it, because it's Paul. (laughs) (laughs) But obviously, Leto doesn't want to make that explicit just yet. Right. Gurney questions who exactly House Atreides even is anymore, pointing out that he was never able to finish the testing of Leto that had been ordered by Jessica. Leto is unimpressed with this objection, saying that he is House Atreides, and ordering Gurney to guard the preacher with his life. Gurney continues to protest, saying that he has no way of knowing that Leto is not possessed. Leto denies that he is, but provides no further details, which is not reassuring from Gurney's perspective. Like, don't worry, dude, I'm definitely not possessed. You can take my word for it. <laughs> Gurney says that if this was true, why did Leto run away from Jakarutu? Leto points out that Namri had had orders to kill him no matter what eventually, as he was actually working for Aaliyah. Gurney doesn't understand how he knows this, but Leto says that he is a truth although apparently Ganima doesn't have the same ability.
1: This is so weird. Like, I feel like anybody who is in... Leto's position in Jakarutu getting like basically waterboarded with spice wouldn't want to get out of that situation.
0: Yeah so like gee why did you escape? Oh because you were torturing me. Yeah. And Gurney (laughs) knows that Namri was a double agent so yeah. (laughs) Seems like there were lots of good reasons for Leto to get out of there. Not just because he was trying to hide the fact that he was secretly an abomination. Mm -hmm. And it's not like Gurney was acting like much of an ally to Leto at the time, so it's not like he could have, like, gone to him for help. Mm-hmm. The preacher interrupts at this point, asking whether Gurney really believes that he could even test Leto at all. Gurney brusly tells the preacher to butt out of things he doesn't understand. The preacher mildly says that he understands quite well, having been tested once by an old woman who thought she knew what she was doing, but turned out to have no idea. Obviously, this refers to Mahayim. Gurney looks at him and asks if he is also a truth The preacher points out that anyone can be a truth-sayer if they are sufficiently honest about their own feelings, I guess allowing them to recognize truth when it is said. I feel like it takes more than this, but uh, according to Paul, anyone can be a truth-sayer. Gurney gets annoyed at this, asking why the preacher is interfering, and wondering to himself who this man really is. The preacher says that he's just responding to events as they happen. He makes a reference to Jessica's willingness to put her own blood on the altar, presumably referring to Leto's testing, But the preacher has his own reasons for involvement. He also says that he sees what Gurney's problem is with the testing, making an analogy to trying to tell the difference between a wolf and a dog, the distinction apparently being how they use their power, in violence or in service. But if you go back far enough, you can't tell the difference. I think meaning that until Leto actually tries to use his power, you wouldn't be able to tell which one he is, maybe? Mm -hmm. So just observing him now when it's just starting is not going to... Give you information, and or that every dog arose from the lineage of wolves, so there's not really a clear cut line between the two. And you can make good or evil decisions differently from day to day. I guess I don't know, Mm -hmm. something like that. Gurney is impressed by this analysis, asking how the preacher knows this, while also noticing that a bunch of people from the seat are entering the room to listen. The preacher goes on about how everything, from the planet itself to evolutionary lines like dogs and wolves, to individual people, all have ancestral memories. Gurney asks how this helps him, and the preacher gives a cryptic answer. How unusual. He should review his own history and communicate the way animals would communicate. I don't know what this means, and Gurney doesn't seem quite sure how to interpret that particular guidance, but he is becoming increasingly convinced that this man might actually be Paul Atreides something in the directness of his speech and in the indications that he is using the voice. The preacher continues, saying that Jessica wanted a very final sort of test, a way to sort of lay Leto's mind bare to an examination to ensure that he would not become an abomination. But Leto has always been open to observation, and such measures weren't needed, I think. As usual, it's all in unclear language. And I think that's what he was saying. He continues, explaining that Leto is confusing to test because he's not actually a single person, but a community of minds, any one of which might temporarily assume command at moments of stress. This can go wrong in some people, and that is where abominations come from, but it isn't inherently a bad thing. And through his testing, Gurney has been exerting more and more stress to Leto's mind community, perhaps even increasing the risk of abomination himself by straining Leto's mind to the point that it could maybe be taken over by one of the bad memories.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Although the preacher doesn't explicitly say that. The preacher says that Leto has achieved a powerful cooperation of his minds and memories, which cannot be shaken, and that where the preacher once opposed him, he now follows Leto, calling him the healer. So it's, it's kind of interesting, though, because I feel like Leto only achieved this, like, personality integration as a result of the testing, so the preacher is all like, oh, this testing was, like, not necessary, and, like, you were doing it wrong, but I feel like it had the desired effect, maybe if not quite the way it was envisioned, but, like, Leto didn't, I think, have a handle on his other memories and stuff very well,
1: yeah, well it before could've... the
0: stress test.
1: Yeah, well, it could have also just been the fact that he was having all this spice introduced to his diet that was sort of like driving him into vision mode i mean maybe if that happened independent of this you know
0: oh yeah i don't think it had to be necessarily like this but i don't think that all of this stuff about leto having achieved this like integration was true before the test oh right yeah so gurney demands to know who the preacher is but of course he doesn't answer directly so gurney again makes his demand the preacher keeps telling him to forget about him and focus instead on Leto, the ultimate feedback upon which our system depends, because he knows the whole of human history and is uniquely suited to improve upon our performance using this knowledge. He scoffs at how Gurney had considered killing such a valuable asset. Gurney protests that he was ordered to test Leto, and the preacher says that he already has, which is true. <laughs> Gurney asks if Leto is an abomination, and the preacher laughs at Gurney's Bene Gesserit nonsense and myths, which is odd because he literally just acknowledged that abominations were a thing like a minute ago. So they're not like a myth. Clearly they're not based on Aaliyah's experience. Mm -hmm. Gurney directly asks the question now Are you Paul Atreides? The preacher tries to deflect that Paul Atreides is no more while listing out his various flaws and failures. But Gurney insists that the preacher speaks with Paul's voice and the preacher asks whether Gurney intends to test him as well. Gurney turns back to Leto, who has been watching all of this impassively. The preacher asks whether Jessica is perhaps testing Gurney. Gurney finds this thought disturbing, and wonders why he allows the preacher to affect him in this way, although he knows it's because the servants of the Atreides are conditioned to obey the autocratic mystique of their masters, according to Jessica. Which is a weird and kind of dystopian description.
1: hmm
0: <laughs> Like that either the Atreides impose this conditioning on their servants or only select people who respond to it. <laughs> kind of strange. At any rate, Gurney can feel something inside him changing in response to the preacher's words, affecting something which even Jessica's Benny Gesserit training of him had only just touched, and he gets angry, not wanting to change. The preacher continues, asking which of them is playing God and for what purpose, which reason alone cannot answer. Gurney turns his gaze back to the preacher, recalling lessons of balance from Jessica, turning his incandescent fury at the preacher's words into a kind of harsh inner calm. The preacher orders Gurney to answer his question. Gurney focuses on the room and the people in it, and comes to the conclusion that this is definitely Paul not dead at all, and that Leto, the child who is not really a child, does seem to have achieved harmony simply by accepting it. Seems like it was a bit more difficult than that, but <laughs> it doesn't really seem that simple, given the difficulties that pre-born tend to have, but, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, he got the spice torture, then he had to, you know, wrap himself in a living still suit.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it wasn't just as easy as deciding to accept the harmony. Like, there's <laughs> definitely more to it than that. Otherwise, he wouldn't get abominations. This might just be a weird way of phrasing it, but it certainly makes it seem a lot simpler than it really is. Gurney asks Paul whether his mother knows about this. Paul sighs and replies that in the view of the sisterhood, everyone who achieves harmony does so simply by accepting it. Gurney marvels that Paul is alive, but Paul derisively asks what alive even is, saying that he learned the lesson that Jessica and most other people never learn about playing God. If you actually get there, it becomes dull and degrading, robbing you of your free will. He says that a god might wish only to escape into unconsciousness. But Gurney's excitement can't really be contained by the preacher's dour words. The preacher goes on, asking whether Gurney would really have followed through with pitting Leto against Ganema in The Test Mashad. We don't know exactly what that means, but it seems like some kind of prisoner's dilemma type deal. The preacher says it would have just been deadly nonsense, and each twin would have pleaded for death to allow the other one to live. I don't really know what the point would have been. Paul asks where such a test would have led, and what it means to even be alive. Gurney protests that this wasn't part of the test at all, and he becomes uncomfortably aware of the surrounding Fremen pressing in ever closer to them, ignoring Leto, but intent upon Paul. Leto interrupts, telling his father to look at the fabric. Paul exclaims, it's fraudden then. Gurney is just as confused as I am by this exchange, But we don't really get any clarity, because before he can ask, Leto tells him not to, lest he start thinking again that Leto is an abomination. He tells Gurney, kind of patronizingly, to just relax and go with the flow, or he'll destroy himself with his doubts. (laughs) However, on cue, Gurney is struggling with doubts, as Jessica had warned him that the Preborn can be charming and they're very clever. Not to mention that this one, in particular, has formed an alliance with his father, Paul Atreides himself. The Fremen crowd in more violently now, shoving Gurney and Leto away in their desperation to get to Paul, shouting at him to ask whether he is truly Muad'Dib as Gurney had said. Paul pushes back, saying that he cannot be Paul or Muad'Dib ever again, and that they must think of him only as the preacher. Gurney is afraid of what might happen here, clearly fearing a riot, but Leto intervenes, roaring at the crowd to stand aside and physically tossing people out of the way, ripping weapons out of their hands with his surprising strength. In less than a minute, the crowd has been pushed back against the cave walls. Leto says that when Shai Halud speaks, the Fremen must obey, obviously referring to himself. A few protest, but Leto rips a chunk of rock out of the wall and crumbles it in his bare hands while smiling like a madman, warning that he will tear their siege down before their eyes if they fail to obey. So cool, Leto has gone full mad god already. This seems like a promising development.
1: It's also kind of hilarious that this, like, nine-year-old is doing
0: this. Yeah. I mean, that honestly might make it more effective because, like, possessed children are creepy. Yeah, true. It's like a a common horror movie trope. Like, it's much more horrifying when you have, like, an innocent-looking child doing horrific things.
1: Yeah. It's easy to forget that he's so young when you're reading this, though, just because he's so, you know...
0: Because he's not really mentally, but... Yeah. His body is still a, you know, small, physically unimposing child. hmm Someone in the crowd whispers that this is the desert demon, which is definitely true. (laughs) He is the one who's been tearing up all their canots, so good on them for connecting the dots. Leto jumps in on this point to add that he will also destroy their canots unless they conceal from all others that Leto and his companions were ever here. If a single whisper of their presence leaves this place, Leto will return and drive everyone into the desert without water. Fun. They gathered from and make the warding sign of the worm against evil, the same way Hara had done to Ganema. Leto had then brought Gurney and the Preacher to Shulak, explaining that they need to move swiftly because Faradon will soon be arriving on Arrakis, which will be the real test, apparently, as Paul had predicted. Gurney has no idea what this means, and wonders about it even now, sitting alone on the rocks of Shulak. But Leto isn't there to ask, and Paul won't reveal anything. So, we've now got a team-up between... Paul, and Leto, and sort of with Gurney, although they're keeping him in the dark. Mm-hmm. We've got an impending confrontation between Aaliyah's lieutenant and Stilgar, with Gnema in the mix there somewhere, mm-hmm. and we apparently have Faradin coming to Arrakis, although whether Jessica will be coming with him is not clear. Right. So things are coming together.
1: Yeah, it's definitely all coming together at this point. We only have five chapters left.
0: So yeah, it kind of has to. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I'm pretty excited to keep reading and see how this all wraps up. I mm-hmm. wonder who's going to make it out alive.
1: Any thoughts on that? Any like vague ideas about what you think in terms of like how it'll play out?
0: I mean, Leto's got superpowers, so I feel like he's probably going to prevail. I do wonder if they'll manage to get to Ganema in time to stop her from murdering Faraden. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would be a underwhelming resolution to that storyline where the, you've got all of the stuff about Jessica training him only for Ganima to just, like, stab him when she meets him. Yeah. So I, I don't think she'll end up killing him, but how she's prevented from doing so, like, whether it's because they, like, wake her up and she realizes that Leto's not actually dead, or because Faradin has been trained now and turned out to be a more formidable opponent than Ganema expects him to be how that gets resolved is interesting and then I guess Aaliyah's ultimate fate like whether they attempt to rescue her if it's even possible or if she's too far gone they just have to kind of put her down mm-hmm. like can you purge an abomination is it possible I don't know it seemed like it was implied that you maybe could but it really hasn't been like on in depth about so yeah I don't know the Benny Jesser certainly seem to think that you should just kill them
1: yeah but as we know they don't know everything
0: <laughs> yeah definitely all right, anything else to add for this episode?
1: No, I think we can wrap up.
0: Okay, sounds good.
1: Till next time, I'm Alex. I'm Elaine. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pod Emperor of Dune. If you enjoyed listening to us, we'd appreciate a review on your podcasting host of choice, and be sure to let your friends know about us. You can find us on Twitter under the handle Nerd I Say More, or send us an email at nerdisaymore at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us further, Please go to patreon.com forward slash nerd I say more where you can also get access to exclusive content.